Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. This is part one of two in our conversation with professional surfer, big wave athlete, and corporate keynote speaker, Mark Matthews. You've probably seen footage of Mark Matthews throwing himself into some of the biggest and most intimidating lumps of water that planet Ocean could muster. And if you've seen those photos and videos, you may have thought that Mark is an absolute madman, a hell man who has no care for his life. But in this conversation, we actually learned there is so much more to Mark than meets the eye. He has gone to the depths of psychoanalysis to understand his own response to fear and anxiety and is now taking those lessons to educate and inspire people from boardrooms to charities and anyone who'll listen. So in this conversation, you'll find there is lots of hints and tips on where you can go to learn more and to do the work on yourself. That is a big lesson that if you want to further your career or your athletic abilities or tackle your own fear and anxiety, you need to do the work and you need to find your own form of sustainable motivation. So if you enjoyed this part one, be sure to tune in to part two. We thank Mark so much for his time. If you like this episode, please write a review and share it around. Thanks for tuning in. Very happy to have on the Ocean Impact podcast today, Mark Matthews, big wave surfer, uh, extraordinary ocean athlete, icon, corporate speaker. Great to see you, uh, mate. How are you? I'm really good, man. I'm excited to be here with you. Um, yeah. How's 2020 in- treating interesting you? Interesting times, but the, the, the silver lining of everything that's going on is kind of you, everyone's getting really good and really used to connecting this way so it's um in some ways i get to connect with people that i never would have so that part of it's good yeah i really appreciate it. we just had a bit of a conversation over linkedin and you were like sure let's uh let's jump on the podcast and have a chat so i appreciate you being so flexible mate no worries at all run me through 2020 for you obviously as you just said it's a it's a big change in circumstances and you probably spend a lot of time traveling around the, the world and the country so how has 2020 been for you I think for me, the, the hugest change to the effect of the pandemic was definitely work related for me. I mean, everything I do as far as keynote speaking goes is conferences and face-to-face events. And it was overnight, they just, they vanished. And my entire year was set out where I was traveling to. I was kind of like one or two gigs a week all over the world, all over the country. And then that was just gone. <laughs> and and that was like 90% of my finances gone as well. So it was... um. It, it was tough to adjust to at the start to, like because of that, but it, it was pretty easy to look around and, and find people were struggling way worse than I was and, um, and just taking that sort of mindset that it could be way worse and um, just using it as an opportunity to get a lot more spare time at home, which is nice because I had a little baby girl who's a year old. So that, that was a massive silver lining to not having to travel. Um, and now just sort of pivoting a little to where... Um, I can deliver what I deliver virtually, which is, um, it's kind of, it could end up being really good as far as you can, I can access more people this way. 
like people have got jobs booked in for sort of Asia, America and, and their audiences that I wouldn't get to share things with otherwise, you know, cause I wouldn't be traveling that far for a lot of different companies who, who can't sort of afford to fly speakers out from around the world. So that part of it's been really good. There's a silver lining, but yeah, you're just man, showing yeah, it. It's, it's a weird world. Yeah, you're just showing us some of the, the kit you've invested in now to be able to sort of replicate what you obviously do normally live in the flesh and, and doing it virtually, which is really impressive. And look, I guess um, just to start the conversation, um, you know, there's obviously as a surfer and a, and a passionate ocean advocate, there's the tendency to want to have this conversation about the ocean and all that you've achieved in it. But, um, you know, we're also a startup accelerator. So we are trying to find and support the entrepreneurs and the founders out there who've got great ideas to help the planet. So I suspect we're going to have a nice balance between what it is that you do with your corporate work and we'll definitely talk about surfing. Are you cool with that? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think surfing's a fair bit more interesting for a lot of people. But, but like you said, I mean, like I think it's the entrepreneurs, you know, the, the up-and-coming entrepreneurs who are, who are environmentally minded can make radical difference. So I think the same sort of um, concepts that I talk about dealing with fear, stress, anxiety to sort of get the best out of your performance is, is a valuable one for your community because if, if I can help in a tiny, tiny way to get the best out of your community, that could have a, a, an awesome effect on, on the ocean specifically and, and maybe on the planet. So, in that regards, I think that that aspect of it's kind of nice. So, I'll, uh, yeah, we'll let everyone know that tune in because we will talk a lot about surfing soon. But I did want to start with just a bit of a, a spiel from you about what it is that you do in the corporate setting and why it is that you are so desirable and sought after. Uh, so give us a bit of a rundown about what it is you do and, and why you think it's so appealing to people across this corporate spectrum. Oh, I think like the, why it's appealing is, I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into that one. I think a lot of people just love watching people wipe out on huge waves and, and I've got lots of spectacular footage of that. So in some regards, that's the, that's a appealing factor. But um, I don't know, as far as what I do, I, I've learned a lot, a lot of lessons surfing the biggest waves around the world um, and, and creating a career out of that. And like I tell audiences, I wasn't born fearless or with some sort of brain defect that, that stops me from feeling fear. I was terrified of the ocean when I was a little boy. Like I was probably uh, like one of the more scare kids out of my peer group, like to the point where my mum used to have to paddle out and rescue me all the time when, when I was young in the ocean because I'd get trapped out of the back, too scared to paddle to shore. How'd that go fear, down? Fear of getting caught inside. Um, well, when you grow up in Maroubra and you're surrounded by all your older friends and surfers and the peers that you look up to in such a sort of rough, tough neighbourhood and your mum paddles out in her boogie board to rescue you, it's <laughs> uh, a pretty embarrassing experience. But yeah, so like going from that kid who's terrified of the ocean to being a big wave surfer, like I've had to overcome a lot of fear in, in that aspect of my life. And, and that for me fundamentally takes a lot of motivation. I think that's what sits below the ability to, to deal with fear, anxiety and stress. Um, so I, I've just gone through different, like a, a lot of different content tips, techniques that I've learned over the years, like in a, in a search for myself to be able to continually motivate myself. And I've taken them and, and tried them 
in, in big wave surfing to see what works for me. And, um, we're all pretty similar. I mean, I'm not like, we're all completely different, but we're also pretty similar. So it's like the stuff that works for me seems to resonate with, with a lot of people around the world, um, from different cultures, different backgrounds, different career paths. So, um, in that regard, it's, uh, it's nice to be able to share those things that, that have worked for me to, um, people around the world. And I get lots of really nice messages from people saying that I've made a difference to them, that they they've decided to take on a, a challenge that they were putting off, whether it's in their career, whether it's in their personal life. And when they see those good results and they tell them to me, it's uh it's pretty special to, to get that kind of feedback. And it helps me too, because I've I use all the techniques to overcome fear in surfing, but my fear for public speaking was way greater than my fear of drowning in the ocean, which is strange. But if you go out into society, like fear of public speaking is kind of up there in the, in the top um, types of fear that people have. So I kind of used all the techniques that I did in the ocean, the motivation techniques to get me there um, in the public speaking world to build the skill set and a career as a public speaker. So in, in that regard, it's nice to, to prove to people that it's like, the application of the same concepts works in different aspects of your life. So that that's probably another kind of appealing thing for, um, for the people that hire me to come and speak. What is it about public speaking that you think people find so terrifying and fearful? I think it's just that fear of embarrassment, rejection, being shunned from the group. If, if you wanted to take that, you know, why do we have that in, in us? I think the best theory is, is the evolutionary psychologists who explain, I mean, the majority of our evolution, we were in hunter gatherer tribes and the majority of our evolution, we were in environments that were radically more dangerous than what we live in now. Like it's unconceivable how much more dangerous and difficult those environments were. And your survival was predicated on being part of a tribe. And basically if you screwed up, and, and the tribe shunned you, you're going to die like a horrific death. So I think millions of years of, of that social dynamic of evolution, just, it's just hardwired us to be so sensitive to the sort of interpersonal relationships that we have with people. And it's, it's in some regards kind of in a way, if you think of it as software, it's like, it's, it's a little bit outdated software to be running in today's modern world because it it's so much safer today. And, but on top of that, it's like our connection with people is so much greater. Like if you think just in terms of, of social media, it's like all of a sudden you've got so much feedback from this massive group of people that if you're running software where one negative comment from someone is or, or like a small group of people turning on you is life or death. If you're running that software in today's world, it's like, holy shit, man, that's like exponential stress and anxiety. So I think that is the sort of basis for why something like public speaking is, is so terrifying and why it feels like, and it has felt like for me for years, it feels like I might die when I go up on stage, you know, like, and, and it was, perplexing to me for a long time until I came across those type of theories. It kind of clarifies why you have that. And, and not that it's like 
something that you can just shun easily and just go, Oh, now I've, I understand why. And now the fear has gone. <laughs> Unfortunately it doesn't work like that at all. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to know, you know, it's good to know because it gives you an understanding that you may want to update at least that portion of software that you're running to, to function in the modern world. This is what I was really impressed in just listening to some podcasts with you prior to this chat and doing some research is that, you know, you've really gone deep into this, haven't you? And I'd love for you just to get a, a bit of a taste of this level of research and understanding this journey that you've gone on really to try and understand yourself. And then now knowing so much about what it means for you to then be able to translate it to so many other people. So give us a bit of a, a timeline of, of what that was like to that, you know, confusion and desire to overcome it in yourself to then what those learning stages were to then feel confident that you had something to share with others. Yeah. I think for me, it was born out of the fact that I was never the most talented surfer. Like I was kind of like, like a state level surfer. I never even made it to the national titles. I was never one of the kids who was like had huge sponsorship straight away. And I, I really wanted the career out of surfing, but it meant that I had to do it in a different way. And I had to try and pick up every skill under the sun to be valuable to a company that was going to sponsor me. And, and that led me down the track of big wave surfing as far as that wasn't a very competitive field. Like there's only a small amount of people that want to go out and surf those waves consistently over a long period of time and make a career from doing that. So to me, it was like, okay, here's like that field where I could possibly fit in and create a career out of. And then as I managed to push myself into surfing big waves, I fell in love with it. Like the feeling of it is just so extraordinary. And I can take any surfer, any top level surfer, um, that's competes on the world tour that has won world titles. And, and when they come and experience some of those big waves, they're just like, it blows their mind. Like the feeling is so addictive, but to do it consistently, like the amount of fear and stress you got to deal with to do it consistently over a decade, that's really hard to do. And, um, that's why I was constantly trying to look for ways to one, manage the stress and anxiety, but then on the other hand, build the motivation that I needed to keep doing it. So I was like, you need so much motivation to do it, but then you need tools to, to minimize stress and anxiety to, to create that balance where you can be successful over a, a sort of longer period of time. And so I, I was constantly figuring out what, what motivated me and what is sustainable motivation. And, and it kind of like at different periods of life, different things motivate you more and less. And, um, and you start to figure that certain motivations while really strong are really taxing as well. So if you, if you look at all external types of motivation, whether it's uh, financial rewards or accolades from, from peers or just um, th those type of things like that are external from what you're doing, if those external motivators don't align with what you intrinsically value, then they will burn you out really quickly. So it's, and then I guess then this, that sort of starting point that I learned is like, you really have to get to know yourself and, and that's tough to do because you got to be honest with yourself about what is actually really important to you. And when you do figure that out, if you can match that, 
with a career that you're doing or with what you want to do, then all of a sudden the motivation grows. And then things that look, that looked before more like scary that they're, they're to you, they're more exciting because you know, what's important to you. And if that, if something lies on the other side of that fear, then you're, you're just much more likely to choose yourself to take that fear on because you know, what's important. That thing on the other side of fear is important to you and your life. Then you're going to take it on rather than the, the reverse version. It's like, I really want the money that's on the other side of doing something scary that that can get you there for short periods of time and, and to certain degrees of fear that you're taking on. But I've found over time that it's, it doesn't seem as sustainable, but when it all aligns, it's like the things that are valuable to you. Also a byproduct is financial reward. Then all of a sudden, like that all matches up. So how's your motivation now versus when you were say, you know, a late teen, how has that changed over time? Late teen, I was just really focused on impressing people like, and, and that's a natural thing at that age. And, and you're hyper motivated because you're full of testosterone, like on, on a sort of hormonal and chem, chemical level, like your, your, um, your energy level to impress people is, is huge. Um, and, and that was kind of the main reason that, that, push me down the path of surfing big waves like to want to be a famous surfer you want to impress people basically you have to yeah and then but then it 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 got to the point where i was like that that initially took me there but then i fall in love with one the experience of surfing the big waves is phenomenal right like that just that present moment of standing on a huge wave being terrified and then making out the other side like it's a really addictive feeling but that's like what if I added all the big waves up that I've ridden in my life, that might be an hour or two worth of my entire life. So it's like, you can't just do it for that. So then it's like, well, what else under there is like, you, you want to impress people. Like, so you, you want people to respect you, think that you're courageous, think that you'll take things on, you know, like they're natural sort of motivators. Then, then you want financial reward from that. And then that started to come as I got sponsors and then, what the financial the finance does for your life is also important because it might give you the freedom to do other good things it might give you time it might give you the ability to support family members like all these different things start to play in it and but i think the most valuable aspect that i learn of motivation is just that i like to to ch the challenge of testing skills that i acquire in, in those tough environments and just seeing progression of, of the skills that you're generating. To me, that's like, I think that's been the most sustainable form of motivation that I've had throughout my life in regards to surfing. It's like these waves look unsurfable, like not many people can surf them. I can go out and do all this preparation, all this training, develop everything I can, every tool I can psychologically, physically, all this stuff, and then go out there and put it to a test and see if I can do it. And, and to me, I think that has actually been the more sustainable version of, of motivation. It's just heightened by all the, the, um, the benefits from it as a career, I think. 
And that's obviously a really uh, good segue to talk about that passion and desire for that, that feeling and that long-term motivation, but then you throw into the mix injuries that then set you away from that so far. You've just gone right back to the almost beginning and you've got to then incrementally build your way back. Is that the main motivation? Is there a bit of the, this sort of like, I have to get back because this is my identity, this is who I am, it's my career? Like what on earth drives you back from the brink on some of these major injuries you've had? I think um, it's all those things. Definitely the, like, the, the, the part where it is part of your identity and, and the loss of it is, is tough to deal with. So, so you do want that back. That's a huge motivator. It's definitely not the best one to sort of chase. Like I think that when your identity shifts into those intrinsic things, like I value like the, the progression of developing a skill set and then putting it to the test and, and making it work, then it doesn't matter whether it's surfing or anything else. It's like, I can still get the positive emotion and, and the excitement out of, whatever it is I'm doing, you know? And, and I learned that a lot when I was injured. It's like, if, if all I'm focusing on is surfing and the need to get back to surfing, then that, that period of not being able to surf, which has for some injuries been over a year, two years is like, it's too tough to deal with if my whole identity is wrapped. So it's like, but if I can shift attention to a new skill, pick up a new skill, go out and test it in environment, I can still get all that positive emotion while I'm injured, you know? Like, so it's, for me, it was, it was more than, it was the adjustment of your goals and what you're chasing while you're injured that makes it manageable, you know, uh, throughout the injuries. Cause like right now, I, after a really severe injury, my career is kind of, it was, it came to an end at an abrupt halt, you know, like, so I was told I'll never surf again after dislocating my knee and I've got permanent nerve damage. So my foot doesn't work like all these different things. So it was like your career's gone as a professional big wave surfer identity, all of that stuff. It, I don't, I think if I hadn't learned about so much about motivation and, um, and sort of that, the basic psychological needs that you need to function. I think that would have crushed me. I don't think I would have been able to deal with the transition. Um, but I was able to just use those tools. as just like to reframe what life looks like for me now with the injury, you know, and as long as you can find progression in, in skill sets and you can, you can um, like, so it's like find progression. Like it's like, pick what you want out of life. Right. So it's like, what, what, what is meaning for you, meaningful for you? What do you want life to look like in five years from now, 10 years from now? And like, that takes time, like months to sort of develop what's really important to you. <clears throat> Get to know yourself. What, what's possible to like, what are you capable of? And then be like, okay, that then that's what I'm chasing and then restructure life so that you're moving towards that goal. I think that's like the basis of, of psychological well-being. If you have that implemented, then the identity pieces and, and the, the money and all those different things are just a secondary part of, of what make you happy, I think. So I was just able to shift from what I was doing 
surfing to speaking like and and speaking's harder for me than surfing so it's like and it's so nerve-wracking so it's got all the components of of um surfing but it's almost better because like surfing wasn't i wasn't doing that much good in the world it's like you just go on out and surf and be waves and get paid to do it. it's awesome and i was doing good in far as i could take care of my family which is unbelievably motivating like originally if you you know for i think for people in our culture and society that we're in especially here in australia where you're doing so well right like it's you're not on the it's not in on the borderline of, of poverty and survival it's like the understanding of how valuable it is to to provide for your family gets shunned down a little bit you know like for other people in the world man if you're just bringing food home for your kids that's like the greatest existence you could possibly live you you would get so much joy out of doing that but whereas here in australia it's not as it's not as heightened because we live such comfortable lives so in, in that regard you got kind of got to shift what you're doing to to satisfy the other aspects of of um your, your needs which is like that progression of skills development movement towards things and then and then going from your personal family and how can you help community you know like what can you do for the community and as far as my speaking goes like it's way more satisfying for me in regards that i actually make a difference in people's life compared to surfing you know which is it's really nice and it's like a it's, it's something that I didn't originally think would be um, that prevalent, you know, like I kind of, at the start, I was like, get up, tell surf stories, entertain people and just tell, tell them what worked for me. And um, that was good enough. But, but when you start getting feedback that it's like, you're really helping people, it's like, whoa, that feels really good. So <laughs> like it, it, all of that has been able to shift, you know, like and deal with the injuries, setbacks. Mm. Um, throughout life yeah that was a long-winded answer to i can't remember what your question was about. Uh, it's um it's all good mate you when you get on a roll uh we all sit back and listen so going back to this sort of notion of of why it's clear that you're so coveted to to put up on a podium or or get in front of a camera and 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 share your insights and stories and you know for the startup community and people out there who you know, perhaps are still working out the medium to long-term values alignment, but they're in a point in their life where they've got the fire in the belly. They've got, um, yeah, uh, an attitude that's right. They want to try and do something beneficial for the planet or for people. They're our, they're our change makers in waiting. It really is these lessons around, you know, resilience and overcoming adversity and, and perseverance, which for me clearly why people love uh listening to you so much so let's talk a little bit more about those those injuries because nothing to me indicates the resilience and perseverance of mark matthews than overcoming the injuries that you have so can you give us a little bit of a rundown of that timeline of the type of injuries you've had and over the last you know decade and 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 how you overcome them and where you're at now yeah, I've had a few, like some physically like sort of really serious, but then didn't have that big an effect on what I was doing. And then others that were not physically as serious, but the mental effect and the adjustments that I made in life because of them were, um, were way more uh, serious in that it changed the way I was doing what I was doing. 
uh, I think of a, the, the, the important ones I think to talk about is I had a really bad one down in shipstones, not physically that bad in the end, but I was knocked unconscious underwater. And when I came up um, and was rescued, I thought I'd broken my neck because the kind of whiplash that I suffered was so bad that I was getting pins and needles down my, my arms and down my back. And um, so, so from the time that I was getting rescued from shipstones, taken to, to hospital and then eventually getting x-rays, it was kind of like this six to eight hour period where I thought I'd, I'd broken my neck. I knew it wasn't so bad that I couldn't walk because I could move my hands, I could move my feet. But I, I just thought, man, this is the end of my surfing career. I thought I'd done one of those neck injuries where it's like you can't then go out and take impact ever again. And, and in my head, that was the first time I was um, really uh, like that, that vulnerability I had in the water. Because like, up until that point, I was doing crazy shit for a lot of years and and this happened when in 2000 and i would have been like six or late 20s when i was sort of late 20s and that was the first time i was like hold on a minute i could die doing what i'm doing or you know like something really bad could happen so then it was like that that shook me enough to go have a look at the way you're doing what you're doing and how you can do it better and and i attributed in the end that injury <clears throat> to um to being burnt out like i and so i was i was so focused on being a successful surfer and and that meant going out and getting photos and footage and publicity that would then turn into sponsorship dollars like that was the the sort of cycle and no matter what, if a swell came up anywhere around the world, nonstop, I was just traveling around the world surfing big swell after big swell after big swell after big swell with the sole focus of getting publicity and building bigger and bigger sponsors. Like none of it to me at that point for over like a three, four year period was a focus on enjoying surfing the waves, like which kind of just burnt me out like it was all i was focused was completely ex in external results and what other people were thinking about my performance what my sponsors were thinking what would make for good photos what would you know like but it may be really successful surfing like so i'm not saying that that's wrong but <clears throat> it it just wore me down to the fact that i was physically became exhausted like i was kind of on the verge of chronic fatigue i'd get sick all the time just niggling injuries over time, but I kind of just kept pushing, pushing, pushing until that happened down in Tasmania. And um, so after that, it was like, I had to learn to do what I was doing, try and get the same results, but, but don't let it tax me so much physically. And, and a big part of that was not only adjusting the mo motivation piece behind what I was doing. So to be less externally focused, like, you put everything in place so that the content comes out of the surf session. But when I'm out in the water, it's about enjoying the surf session, you know, like, and treating it like no one's watching and just doing what I do like to, for the enjoyment, you know, and that made a huge difference. Learning to manage the head noise in the lead up to big swells made a big difference. So it's like you get a big, swell forecast you know after checking you know i could check the swell forecast this morning and you see a huge swell coming and you know in a week's time you're going to be surfing massive waves somewhere so for seven days 
it's like someone switches on a TV at the back of your head and, and in the back of my head, the TV just plays every single way I might die in seven days time in this surf session. And it's like constant loop of thoughts of all the worst case scenarios that could play out, you know? And, and for a long time I was like, I'd get caught up in those thoughts, you know, and I, I, my, my attention would shift to them and I'd just constantly be thinking about it. And then by the time I'd turn up to surf, you know, after a week of that, my body felt like I'd, I'd been through a thousand wipeouts before I'd even put a foot in the water. And that was all just due to replaying wipeouts over and over again in my head. So learning tools to sort of disconnect from the, the negative thought patterns. Cause like the negative thoughts are, are trying to one, either tell you don't do what you're about to do. Right. Which is pretty good advice for some waves that I was going to surf, but <laughs> I was like, I'm going to surf them anyway. You know, like that's what I'm going to do no matter what that, tv in my head is playing so it's like when well, once you make that choice it's like okay so now the thoughts you can think of the thoughts they're telling you you need to prepare to avoid all these things happening so it's like okay that's a better way of looking at it these are all the things that might go wrong because i'm watching them in my head over and over again what do i need to do to prepare to avoid that or if they do happen what's my contingency plan after and so doing that and doing that real specific preparation for all those things that would like lessen the, the 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 head noise so proper preparation but then like there's it doesn't completely get rid of it it's still there you know and you can only do so much preparation so once the preparation is done the the, the contingency plans are put into place for when things go wrong <clears throat> then it's about the ability to to just not let those thoughts affect you physically. And that's just by using techniques that disconnect you from thinking about them long enough to, for it to create a physical response. So if you have a thought and you dwell on it for just long enough, then, then you have an emotional response and that physical, that plays out in your physical body. Like you get tension, like tense, people get stressed, you get the tight neck muscles, all these different sort of, uh, physical ailments from constantly thinking about that. So, but if you can just use a, a few different techniques that I had, one was um, questioning your thoughts. It's, it's a technique called the work is developed by an author called Byron Katie. And I found it really useful for a long period of time. It's, it's kind of like you got to sit there and see that you're dwelling on a thought. Like I can see, okay, I'm playing out for dying in an up and coming swell. And then there's a series of questions to make you detach from the thought. And it's like, so first, what is the thought? And you write it down. Like you got to, these techniques, you got to write them down because if you stay within your head, trying to justify and think about things, like your brain justifies itself at the speed of light. So you, you can't compete with that. So you got to actually write it down, you know? So it's like, what is the thought? And then you write the answer. Okay. I'm going to drown in this next big swirl. How does the thought make you feel? Okay, so then think about the actual physical feeling that I'm having when I'm thinking about drowning. Like, oh, and you can feel tightness. Oh, it's like feel feel nervous, apprehension, anxious, you know, like all these different things I'm feeling. And then the next question is, who would you be 
without that thought. So it's like, once you ask yourself that question, it's like, okay, imagine I'm, I don't have this thought for a moment. What do I feel like? And then it's like, all the stress lifts off you and you're just like, holy Feeling shit. It. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, holy shit, I feel good. You know, like, and it's just like highlights. It's like, that's what the thought's doing to you. And, and in the blink of an eye, like, and if, if you lift all that mental stress, like you're going to go into the dangerous event in better shape, you know, because if I could disconnect from those thoughts, you know, consistently throughout the day and they weren't, wearing me down then when i do turn up to surf big waves because i've decided i'm going to do it anyway then when i do turn up i'm in the best shape to deal with it but if i constantly played the thoughts over in my head then i'm going to turn up physically exhausted and therefore vulnerable yeah so that research yeah that research by you said is it byron katie i mean has that been adapted for people dealing with fear in any setting is it designed for people that are going into you know sport and adrenaline uh, environments or was it just for a general no it's for general yeah and she uses it it's really good in um like i think she's a re- relationship counselor is her background and it's really good in in counseling relationships because there's a couple more questions then that you add on that explore why you think the way you do and and like her version of it is more like what you're thinking about your partner you know and then she's got all these questions that and basically when you you flush it out it's like the negative thoughts that you're thinking about your partner are most likely coming from things that you don't like about yourself you know like and and changing what you don't like about yourself is much easier much more rewarding than trying to change someone else you know so yeah it's kind of, that's where i think the book that i read in was called loving what is was the name of the book but she's got a, an online platform that's really good called the work and you can p- write the answers in the platform you know and it and ask you the questions really good really good technique it but here's the the kicker it doesn't work whatsoever if you don't do the preparation do you know what i mean like you can't you can't compete without doing the preparation that that's the part that i learned because it's like i went down rabbit holes with all the cognitive techniques which that is like you you're using that part of your brain to like sort of reframe the way you're seeing the world but you you can't you can only the, the the reframing will only last if you actually have done the preparation to build the skill set to deal with the scary environment because i could take uh you know, like a, a, a beginner surfer to go down to surf Shipstone's Bluff, they could do every cognitive reframing technique under the sun, meditation, uh, like Byron Katie's, the work, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, like any technique you want. They're going to be shitting themselves the whole week before they go down there because they just don't have the skill set to deal with it. So it's like the preparation, the skill sets, the most important. And then techniques like, Myron Katie's one and, and all the other awesome ones, they're, they're add-ons to, to the skill set. So it's, um, and, and, and I mean, for your audience that are doing startups, I mean, it's like, that's terrifying, you know, like in, in so many regards, like failure is tele, ter, tele, terrifying. And, and when you start up, it's like, you're going to put the security of a job 
that you know you can have for life and do in this thing you know like like you're gonna you're pushing that security aside to take on something that you has way higher um <clears throat> element of failure in it like way more likelihood of failing so all of a sudden you're just taking on you're deciding to take on so much more stress and anxiety so then it's like know why you're doing it like really get to know yourself why and and the benefits of why you're going to take on something like that no no your skill set you know like and are you clever enough are you good like you can do testing under the sun to understand whether it's likely that what you're doing is beneficial you know and then build the experience develop the skills use the techniques and and that's kind of puts you in the best stead to to manage all that stress that you're gonna face you know can't take the ocean out of me